So it's Q and A, right? <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> I know it's my son. I was first. <laughs> the, the, this no. could be bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How dare you? No. Um, <laughs> now, I, well, you talked about James. So, like, uh, when you read James first, that's maybe Romans was kind of trying to correct, or uh, Martin Luther, or the, just the whole message. So, was James written before Romans? Was this like a? Did Paul have? knowledge of of how that was being interpreted when he wrote Romans or do you do you know about that that's a good that's a good question Jeremy fair enough as best as we can tell, James or Galatians are the earliest New Testament writings. Yes, uh, you, the lady over here. Had. <clears throat> you know, a pastor, a, pa- a pastor always really sounds smart if they're talking about what they know. If you ask them questions they don't know, they sound stupid. So, <laughs> Well, I, this is more of a comment, but I thought that your point about what comes first, faith or regeneration, that, of course, we all, the first inc- inc- thought is faith, but it does make sense that you can't have faith without a dead person can't have faith. So I thought that was an, a well-put reminder of God's work in our life, that he, if he doesn't do it, it ain't happening. Right. So it's not because we're smarter than the average bear. Um, you know, uh, I I was part of my ministry at one time as being a pastor was also overseeing ordination and licensure councils. And uh, there was a guy there um, who believed that faith came before regeneration. And I said, well, in Ephesians, it says that we are dead spiritually. And uh, the same word, by the way, there for death is the death of Jesus Christ. He wasn't just swooning. And uh, so I said, so was he mostly dead or totally dead? <laughs> he didn't, I was taken from Prince's Bride, if you're familiar with that. <laughs> and he wasn't particularly happy with that comment, but sort of made the point. Um, we're totally dead, unable to respond unless, of course. So all glory goes to God for our salvation. Amen. Um, I just wonder if you could maybe speak to a little bit more about our, the power over sin. Um, I'll speak more for myself, but I think we all struggle with the fact that we still sin. And you often wonder, well, why does that have so much control over you? Or you don't, how come we don't have that power or we don't use that power to overcome sinning? Right. Um, So he's talking about uh, the second aspect of the gospel is uh, the power, being delivered from the power of sin. As I said in the sermon, um, it is natural 
for a Christian to think that now I have been regenerated, that I can live this Christian life if I just really try hard. And that's not going to work. Um, Eventually you're going to discover that uh, I can't do the good that I want to do. And so I think a lot of times Christians end up becoming pharisaical. You know, I, I have victory over certain parts of my life, and so I'm critical of other people and so forth because they don't have it, and um, it's just a dead-end road. Uh, so, again, the apostle in Romans chapter 7 is saying, I agree with the law, it's holy and righteous and good. I want to do it, I just can't do it. And so somehow we've deceived ourselves into thinking that now I'm a Christian, I have this automatic power to be able to live a holy life. And we still have the dead man with us, as Paul says, who will deliver me from the body of death? I'm still connected with this old nature. And so we, we have to go back and appropriate what Christ did for us by faith. Because we don't feel it. The only way we know it is because in Romans chapter 6 it says that it happened. Because of my union with Christ, I have been set free from sin. So if I appropriate that, as the apostle, as he says, therefore consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God, which is sort of the key, uh, you'll begin to live the victorious life. Because now you see your focus, as Paul goes on, is my focus is what Christ has done for me, not what I can do for Him. There is therefore now no condemnation. He has given me the Spirit of God. He loves me. And so my focus is all on this great uh, work that Christ has done for me. The focus is on God's love for me. The focus isn't on sin and stop sinning, because then your focus is sin. And the focus isn't me and what I can do. My focus is on what Christ and what He has done for me. And so, uh, and if, if our focus isn't there, then really it's tantamount to saying that we're trying to be sanctified by works, by my works. And it's a failure every time. So, Sanctification is believing that I've been set free by the power of God because of what happened at the moment of salvation, actually. You know, it's sort of like this. Somebody's used the illustration. Um, You know, slavery was a bad mark on our country, and uh, we all understand that. But in 1863, President Lincoln made the Emancipation Proclamation, which now it was... You are free. If you were a slave, you are now free. You can leave the master. You don't have to stay there anymore. Why is that true? Because the president said so. So you don't have to fight the master. You know, it's not a perfect illustration. <laughs> but, but theoretically, you don't have to fight the master. You don't have to take the master to court because the president of the land said you are free. So you can walk away from slavery. Now, you can sit there and try to fight the Master, or you can just simply walk away. And so it is with being set free from sin. We can either try to fight the sin ourselves, you know, look how good I am in making these resolutions, and we're going to fail, or we can simply accept what Jesus Christ said. I set you free. Our response should be, Hallelujah! I'm free. There's no condemnation. And then he says, you know, there's great love for us. 
which inspires us. You know, Paul would say in another Titus, for the grace of God has appeared teaching us to say no. So we have to get rid of this concept that uh, now that I'm a Christian, you know, I'm good enough to do these things. No. We need, you see why we need the gospel every day? You see, every day the gospel becomes more and more precious to us because we understand that the gospel isn't just deliverance from the penalty of sin, as wonderful that is, and to think about it, but it's deliverance also from the power of sin and eventually from the presence of sin. And so the gospel becomes our treasure. Yes. So I just want to emphasize, glad you asked that. I just want to emphasize over and over again, the gospel isn't just I've been delivered from the penalty of sin. The gospel is God's redemptive plan. I'm praising God for his redemptive plan from beginning to end. That's, that's the treasure. Yes. Okay. Um, I got an inspiration on this when you were preaching, so I'm mm-hmm. trying not to go all Pentecostal here. But feel <laughs> okay. free to straighten me out. All right. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So I got this picture of us being in surgery throughout all our lives without anesthesia. And we are in agreement. We are actually the surgeon. And the word of God is the instrument that is Mm. used. Yes. So, and I'm thinking of anesthesia. That'd be things like alcohol, marijuana, different ways to escape from the pain. But, yeah, God is the great surgeon. Right. There might have been more. Is that on track? Yeah, that's on track. Uh, Yeah, you know, early on in my Christian life, I was... You know, if you're going to overcome sin, you need to memorize the Word of God. And so I took that to heart. And like Psalm 119, Thy word I have treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against you. How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? But obviously the Word of God is the thing, the instrument. But one of the dangers, however, <clears throat> is if you don't, it always has to be put in a theological framework. Um, the Word of God is always pointing us to God's redemptive plan. So a person can be reading the Word of God and not necessarily being sanctified because they've taken pride that they know certain aspects of the Word of God. Again, it always has to be framed in the Gospel, God's redemptive work, because that's what the Word of God is always pointing to. It's always pointing to that. That's why Jesus said you Jews are looking at the Word hoping you'll find salvation. You keep missing it. Because you don't see me. And that can happen to Christians as well. We just, we're, we're not seeing Christ the way that we should. Yep. So in, in talking about that, then, so are, are there, I know that the Bible, that the Word itself is the most clarifying way to, to seek truth yes. and, the, and, the, and the true wisdom that, that God has given to us. Are there other pieces of literature that could help us understand better justification, sanctification, glorification, um, principles of spiritual growth, you know, some books like that that could, and even though I don't ever want to very, you know, go away from the word because I don't, right. just something that helps us clarify in a, in a more, I don't know yes. how to say that because sometimes I'm confused about those three. Right. And it, it, it helps to go over it and over it and over it. Yes. Are there other literatures that you think? Yeah, I mean, obviously the starting point is always the Word of God. Um, 
that's our basis, that's our foundation. But, uh, you know, obviously uh, uh, there have been uh, great saints who have thought through all of this, uh, devoted their lives to it, and God has gifted them in uh, great ways to be able to communicate these things. <clears throat> probably the five most influential theologians in the history of the church, and then I'll get more specific, are, is probably Augustine, outside of the Bible, uh, Augustine, John Owen, J- Martin Luther, John Calvin, and uh, Jonathan Edwards. What was the second one? I've got to start over again. Uh, uh, Augustine, uh, John Owen, who was a Puritan, uh, and Calvin and Luther uh, were the refer- they were prior to John Owen, and then um, Jonathan Edwards, who was an American uh, brilliant theologian. Um, <clears throat> there were probably the five most influential individuals, um, so that a lot of others sort of spread out from them. But I, I think more recent authors would be like uh, R.C. Sproul. I think R.C. Sproul has uh, I've become a devout reader of him. Uh, he clearly articulates these different doctrines. Um, a book. Uh, when it comes to uh, sanctification, uh, Principles of Spiritual Growth by Miles Stanford or the Green Letters is extremely helpful uh, in that respect. It's just a short little book and easy read uh, and <clears throat> gave it to a person once and said they were struggling with uh, sanctification, as we all do. And I said, you know, you need to read this book. And oh, I'll read that and just a little short while, she started reading, and she goes, oh, I realize that every chapter you just sort of have to mull and meditate on. Uh, but it's the principles that I've just been talking about here is, is that uh, uh, sanctification is by faith in the finished work of Christ. <laughs> and then if you add all of the Christian disciplines, that's, that obviously that's great, but don't forget it's by faith in the work of Christ, which is the gospel. That's why we keep coming back. I just want to keep going over this again. The gospel is three parts. Deliverance from the penalty, the power, and the presence. That's the gospel. So we aren't saved by the gospel to the law or Christian disciplines. We're saved by the gospel to the gospel to the gospel forever so that God gets all the glory at the end of the day. <clears throat> yeah, you know, John Piper is a, a big one of this, is that, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, the passing pleasures of sin, we all understand that. Uh, you have to find something more pleasurable than sin if you're going to be able to stop sinning. And um, what it, for, for the long haul, you've got to find something that's more pleasurable. Um, we all know that in the physical realm and so forth. Uh, we all hate diets because you have to eat stuff you don't like. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, right, right, <laughs> exactly. And unfortunately, diets usually don't have something better than chocolate, you know. <laughs> but anyway, the whole point is is that we have to find something more pleasurable in order for us to have consistent victory. So like Psalm 16, for instance, where the psalmist says, in your presence are pleasures forevermore. Um, we, we, we need to find our pleasure in what God has done for us. 
He's not the cosmic killjoy. He's not always reproaching us. He's not always condemning us. He's not doing any of those things. Uh, Jesus says, uh, my, work is low, my work is easy, my work is light, something like that. And, and I am gentle and lowly. Um, and so his voice is one of pleasure for the Christians if we just tune our ear to hear that. And, and his voice becomes more pleasurable than the passing pleasures of sin. So that now, you see, I'm not not doing sin because I'm a good little self-righteous Christian. I'm not doing the sin because I'm finding something more pleasurable in the presence of my Lord. Yeah, <clears throat> delight in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. And uh, yeah, you know, isn't it interesting the psalm that delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart? Well, of course, I want to be a billionaire. <laughs> no, <laughs> He gives you the right type of desires and uh, He sort of changes your wanter and so forth. Yeah. The desires become His. Right. Right, right. That's what I said? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Heidi. I sort of forget what I say. <clears throat> you know, I, I know what I'm talking about as long as you feel free to ask a question at any time, but <clears throat> um, let me just give you a little bit of my testimony. Uh, you know, I grew up believing there was a God. We never went to church. I didn't know who God was, never read the Bible or anything like that. Um, I, but I believed growing up, uh, I believed in God until I got to college and my uh, head resident was making a case for evolution. And it made sense to me that their evolution was true. And so immediately there can't be a God. Uh, that's a logical conclusion, by the way. If theory of evolution is true, there is no God. And... Um, in fact, that was the whole reason for the theory of evolution. There is no God. And so I became a sort of a passive agnostic or atheist. And I remember listening to a video that was playing at the college I was going to at the time. And I was the only one there. And this video was asking people the question, do you believe that Jesus is going to come back at, uh, in the future? And it took me a while to figure out what in the world they were asking. And then I thought, what? Well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I don't know much about him, but I think he died. <laughs> Why in the world would he come back? And uh, so I was in my college years, wine, women, and song, and uh, that type of thing. And eventually, um, <clears throat> my brother-in-law said, do you know what you're doing is wrong? And I go, really? And he started talking about Jesus Christ and and uh, and then so I, I well maybe I think God is real and so I was going to try transcendental meditation, so I read Maharishi Mahesh Yoga's book uh, about meditating and I thought oh this this sounds pretty good and so I went to go get my matra and it was like twilight zone I go no this isn't working, <laughs> a few months later I end up in Colorado where my cousin was and he's I tell him about my spiritual experience he says you know Terry you haven't come far enough. And uh, I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, I explained, I had a million questions, and he answered them all from the Bible, which I was shocked and amazed. It's like, wow, I thought that was an old book that was irrelevant. And uh, he said at the end, he says, well, do you believe you're a sinner? And I go, oh, yeah. 
Yeah, you don't have to convince me of that. I am well aware of that. And he said, you know, Jesus Christ came and died for you. And do you want to accept him as your Savior? And I said, well, you know, I know people that say that they know Jesus Christ, but their lives aren't changed. I want my life to be changed because I'm heading down a dead-end path all the time. Will he change my life? And he goes, yes, he will. And he did. And uh, I started, I bought a Bible and started reading it for the very first time. And I'm going, Jesus really is God. I went back and told all my friends, and they all went, wow, that's wonderful. Let's start a Bible study, and a thousand people show up. <laughs> no, they thought, thought I lost my mind and uh, end up at Simpson College. Uh, I, my counselor said, you had a major in religion since you appear to be a religious person, and, and uh, so this religion class was a heretic that was teaching it, and... At yeah, Simpson? yeah, <laughs> and uh, what? Well, I didn't hear it. <laughs> and uh, uh, this professor was rejecting the Bible, and I had just come to believe it. And it's like I was almost having a nervous breakdown. It's like, and two months, yeah, maybe two months, and. Uh, uh, by God's providence, I was led to Martinsdale and uh, came to church a couple of times and came to a Bible study and Joel set me aside and he said, hey, if you were to die tonight, do you know that you would go to heaven? And I said, well, two weeks ago I would have, but I'm not sure now. <laughs> and uh, he shared with me and ended up at Martinsdale and Joel took me under his wing and uh, for which I'll ever forever be thankful and uh, so started attending church. Carol and I, we met at college. We got married here. And our wedding march was Mighty Fortresses Are God, which we sang this morning. <laughs> so thank you, Lord. You know, <laughs> I forget why I even started all of that. Oh, uh, oh, uh, b- 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 yeah, because of, you know, coming out of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. J- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, people have become crueler, Jeremy. Since, I, <laughs> uh, you know, coming out of a lifestyle of wine, women, and song, um, uh, you know, I I had to find something that was more pleasurable than that, and uh, so that's what led. It took me a while to work through all of that, but uh, uh, to, to, to get the concept, believe me, I still struggle with it, just like everybody does every day, but to get the concept that sanctification is by finding pleasure in God, not by in not sinning. That can't be the focus. It never works. Really, really enjoyed your application point about how if you're sharing the gospel, it has to start with someone's understanding of their own sinfulness, right? Right. And Martin Luther, you know, his great struggle to understand justification, the one thing Luther definitely had was that he understood he was sinful and couldn't be holy enough to please God, and I just like the way you tied that in. And if you don't have that first, well, then what do I need the gospel for? Right, very good point. Um, You know, that's the Spirit's job, by the way, is to convict a person of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And, uh, yeah, so 
Um, uh, I was going to say also is that Paul's explanation of the gospel in Romans isn't necessarily the same as you would share it with an unbeliever. I mean, you don't take them through Romans chapter, you know, and point out every disastrous thing in their life. You can, but I mean, if you were going to preach on how to share the gospel, I would probably go to John chapter 4 and Jesus with a woman at the well and um, the master sharing. And of course, he brings up her sin by saying, you were married. She goes, I'm not married. And he goes, yeah, you were married five times before. Eh, what's that about? You know, so, uh, so technically this morning, it wasn't necessarily how you would share your faith. Um, but uh, but those are, you need those principles, that's for sure. That a person needs to understand those principles, however you want to share that. <clears throat> I thought for sure somebody would say, what do you mean that God doesn't love everybody? Um, because... Yeah, you know, what's that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have to be careful there. I mean, when you're talking to a person individually, you don't know exactly how they're going to ask that question. Is it possible for God to love me? Yes. Does God love you in the present situation? No. Uh, the wrath of God is over your head. And so, because you don't want to give them a false idea that if God loves me, he loves me, I don't have to change. No, that's not true. You have to repent um, and believe. So, you know, it's sort of interesting. Uh, I've gone to Russia a number of times, and we, when we were in St. Louis, we had a Russian congregation inside of the English congregation. The Russians always would phrase salvation this way you repent and believe, uh, so that you don't have this easy believism that. Um, no, you do understand that if you truly believe, your life's going to be changed. You have a different allegiance now. You're not calling the shots anymore. We're not saying that a person has to clean up their life. It's just that you have a different allegiance. You're not, again, calling the shots. Jesus is going to be calling the shots. So, yes, Jeremy. Well, the, the question you brought up with, uh, I thought it was provocative and I enjoyed it. Does God love? Does he not love? It all comes down to definitions of terms because in one sense, b b we think of love primarily as feelings or acceptance. Well, if you define love that way, God certainly does not love the unbeliever. He doesn't accept them. But biblically, he's acted lovingly towards him in sending his son. So in another sense, you could say, of course he does love them. Look at what he's done. Right. But when our focus of love is, is less on action and more on feelings, and especially now with this unconditional acceptance, it, it, there is a great danger. I've met somebody who, when someone tried sharing the gospel with them, if God loves me, then I'm good. Because he understood love to me, <clears throat> unconditional acceptance and affirmation. God right. thinks I'm wonderful. God right. affirms me. And so it, it all comes down, it's, it's less terms and meanings of terms, communicating. So if you can communicate to someone, the, the, the challenge I find is God is fully prepared to pour his wrath out on you if you reject his grace. God, at this moment, John 3, his wrath abides over you. He is fully prepared without flinching, without hesitation to pour out his wrath on your sin, and he's made away lovingly. I mean, so in one sense, God loves and hates the unbelievers. 
he has acted in loving ways and he is fully prepared to do the most harmful thing he, anyone could do. Right. And it's that tension that can be tricky to explain. Anyway, sorry. Right. Oh. Right, right. I agree. Yes. Well, that was part of, it's been our, our message lately in John a couple times. Jeremy's referenced that in, I don't know the verse, but in Exodus where God is telling who he is, loving kindness to all generations. He doesn't put the sins on the children. And on the other hand, he is not willing for uh, sinful people to continue in their sin or something. Right. I can't remember the exact phrase, but that he's both sides. But then he provides both sides too. So yeah. it's like a perfect yeah. solution. Right. Yeah. I forget which, I think it's maybe Amos. I'm not exactly sure where it's, God says, I will in no way let the guilty go unpunished. It was ex- Exodus 34. Yeah. Moses is up on Sinai, abounding his steadfast love, but by no means letting the guilty go free. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, I had the pleasure, you know, when we left Martinsdale, it was a sad day when Carol and I went off to seminary and Erwin Strand, who's with the Lord, Merwin Strand, um, said, uh, what did I say? Oh, yeah, Merwin. Um, He said, it's just a chance to meet more of God's people, and uh, how true that was, and we ended up in St. Louis, and met a wonderful evangelist, and uh, by the name of Charlie Johnson, and I, I hated to meet him initially because my thought of evangelists, they're all shallow and pushy, you know, like a car salesman. And Charlie was the antithesis of that. Gentle, kind. His theology was deep and wide. Um, just a, He's still a living, wonderful guy. And, and, uh, um, but anyway, one of his favorite evangelistic stories to tell um, is talking about the love of God. He said, uh, and if my grandchildren get this too, so a little child understands. He said, what if you lived in a neighborhood where there's a bully and uh, he is constantly uh, taunting you, he maybe rapes your women, he steals everything from you, he's just a thug, beats you up whenever he sees you. Um, I said, would you like to live in that neighborhood? Anybody? No. Move to San Francisco. No, anyway. <laughs> so, so he's, I mean, obviously, nobody wants to live in that type of neighborhood. And this bully is just terrorizing people day after day. And then you f- hear that God has moved into the neighborhood. And you're going, oh, good. Finally, somebody's powerful enough to deal with the bully. And so you go up to the door. Uh, you sort of, there's liberty here with this illustration. You go up to the door and. God answers it and say, God, we're so glad you're here. You're powerful. You can take care of this bully that's just terrorizing our community. And God says, well, I would accept I'm a loving God. And I'm not going to do anything with the bully. Would that be fair? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, everybody gets it, right? Now, if God isn't going to deal with the bully, he's not loving with the innocent. So, you know, when people think that God is not going to judge them, it's like, well, he's going to judge the bully. The bully just happens to be you, by the way. (laughs) You bullied my son. And you put him on the cross. But it's a great illustration to prove to people that you do believe in justice and bullies should be taken care of. 
again, you may not have shook, shaken your head yes, but you know it's true. It's patently obvious. So in other words, Psalm 89, God's throne is one of justice and righteousness. Yes? I have a question about this. Never from a couple of weeks ago, never we used to take mom to the, we went to a country of Lost Truster, and we, we helped mom in the hospitals, and we're praying for um, Jim Pika was in the doctors, and he got well, and he got better, and he said he got COVID, so we're praying for that. One question is about what the law says. It's all different. Anything has changed because it's, it's in October to November and December that COVID will be closed on January 6th because no, no mask mandates for this month. Could you, could you sort of clean that up for me? I didn't quite catch it all. We might get this one after. It's kind of a long one, but Lucas will come back to you. Okay, buddy? Okay. Thanks for asking the question. Anyone else? Yes. Since you brought up Russian, mm-hmm. the Russian word for Sunday is Voskosinian. It means to rise from the dead. Huh. So they kind of have a way of getting to the root of things. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's a barbaric language, but yeah. it states obvious things. Yeah. You know, feel free to, if nobody's going to say anything, I'll just keep going, waxing on here. Um, I went to Russia seven times to teach pastors how to uh, preach and study the Word of God. And uh, one of their big things, they always ask this question, how many times can a parishioner miss church before they're excommunicated? Every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> if one passes it, yeah, three times they're out. Yeah, you have to understand that in a persecuted church, they th- view things a bit differently. But, uh, but, but uh, the people that uh, were here in America are wonderful people, lovely people. Can you comment about anything else that your team learned about sort of like Russian Orthodoxy, that kind of stuff? Anything at all? Um. Just that Russian Orthodox is just a lot of icons in the buildings, and I don't think they really preach anything. Um. The people who were in our church had a, a long history of being persecuted, and we heard stories of them walking eight miles, I mean, or 16 kilometers, whatever, and they had... They had to have their shoes at work so they would walk barefooted all year round to save their shoes so that they could work when they got there. Yeah. So it's just a lot of, uh, yeah, they the, knew a lot more persecution. Yes, and they're very, very sensitive to socialism and communism that is coming our way. They all can see it. They see it coming yes. they are outraged. Yes. What year was this when you guys were there? Excuse me, what year? Yeah, like what years were it? Like that I was in Russia? Yeah. Uh, I think the first time I went was in 1995. 
And the last time I went, I think was like in 2005, something like that, 2007. Uh, the first time I went to Russia, I, they said there'll be a cultural shock. And I go, oh, no, nah, cultural shock. And it was in the wintertime. And I'm in Moscow. And uh, it was a cultural shock. Um, it was, Moscow was like a third world city. They were all apartment buildings. You wouldn't see houses. You wouldn't see strip malls and all of that type of thing. And uh, when I, the last time I went to Moscow in 2007, it was like Las Vegas. Lights, stores, it was total transformation. One of the favorite things to do when I was in Moscow was to ride the metro. Uh, Eight million people ride on it every day. And you see all different types of people. And uh, you can immediately discern who's American and who's Russian, because the Russians never speak. Americans get down, hey, how you doing? Yeah. <laughs> oh, they're an American. <laughs> yes. And that school that uh, you taught at, mm-hmm. it had 40 students at the time, and it, was, it had about 40 students at the time, and there were, um, it was actually a school, and when the authorities found out that there was a school, it was cleaned out within, what, 24 hours? And right now, that school has about 6,000 students, seminarians. Really? 6,000. Really? I did not know that. Yes. Vitaly yeah. Petrov, yep. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. Using, uh, Using television. It's a it, internet, internet seminary. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's about the size of Duke University. Yeah, you know, and I know that uh, John MacArthur's church has a lot of influence on the Russians as well. And uh, been to India and I've been to Africa as well. By God's grace, never have to go again. <laughs> I don't particularly like to go overseas, but uh, <clears throat> we have just four minutes. I want to read. Um, Roland Baton is the uh, standard um, biographer of Martin Luther. <clears throat> and since his Reformation got just three minutes, let me read. These are Luther's own words. He says, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but one expression, the justice of God or the righteous of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage me. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered. Now, this is Luther's own writing. Day and night I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it came to me an inexpressible, sweet, and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will. 
that you shall see pure grace and overflowing love. This is to behold God in faith that you should look upon His fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger, no ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see Him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if dark cloud had been drawn across His face. And so as I said earlier, Luther's commentary to Romans is like, uh, as sort of Terry paraphrase, is it's like the sweetness of the unabridged gospel because it all shouts his love and grace towards us. As Warren Wearsby said, we are far richer than we could ever think or imagine, aren't we? Uh, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this amazing salvation that you have given to us that's sweet every day because it brings us into your presence. And uh, we are thankful for that. We thank you for this church that is true to the gospel. But as Martin Luther said, every generation has to defend it because it is naturally offensive to people. And But we are thankful for Martinsdale to have remained faithful. And we can just continue to pray for this church to, re- to remain faithful to the gospel of your glorious redemption. In your name we pray, amen.